Welcome back to Those Happy Places. In tonight's episode, episode 2, Fantasyland and its Dark Rides. We're going to be covering a lot of topics today, from the classic Fantasyland's use of its intellectual properties to today's Dark Rides. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And I guess one way to start this episode, Alice, is with a definition. What is a Dark Ride? That's a good question. A dark ride, or as I've learned very recently, is sometimes called a ghost train, is a ride that consists of a very simple structure. Riders get in a car and are led through a series of scenes that are specially lit to give only what information the designers want them to see. Common versions of the dark ride include a haunted mansion style horror show or the kind of cliche tunnel of love. It's not typically a thrill ride, and it's generally meant for children and families, but there are quite a few variations, and a lot of dark ride elements are used in different kinds of rides. For example, the Matterhorn Bobsleds uses dark ride stuff inside the mountain, but it's really an indoor-outdoor roller coaster. Uh, but the ones we're talking about today are very traditional dark rides with just like a few structural twists. Yeah, and at 1955's opening of Disneyland, uh, Snow White's, uh, not then Scary Adventure, it was just called Snow White's Adventure, uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and Peter Pan's Flight were all available to guests uh, to ride, and that made up about a quarter of available attractions on opening day. Uh, I was looking at the list of available attractions on opening day for research today. Uh, and it was, it was really only about a dozen. So these three rides, uh, and their style are really kind of, um, iconic of Disneyland when we talk about how they set up their rides for storytelling. Right. Which is why we're going to talk about these rides specifically today. The ones just mentioned and the ones that they've added to Fantasyland since, which include Pinocchio's Daring Journey and the Alice in Wonderland ride. Uh, so, Betty, why are we talking about fantasy dark rides specifically and not other kinds of dark rides? Well, you know, uh, almost every really iconic ride from Disneyland is a dark ride in some way. Uh, anything that takes place inside of a show building, uh, anything where the lights are down or uh, there's an interior part, such as Big Thunder Mountain or, as you said, the Matterhorn. Uh and for me, the Fantasyland Dark Rides are really kind of the prototypes of that storytelling style. Uh, and you were, you and I were talking about this and we were saying to each other that these are really the most straightforward, simple ways to tell stories in rides. <laughs> Disney, at its core, uh, wants to tell stories. That's what they want to do with their rides. More, more so than, uh, thrilling or, uh, pushing you to some extreme limit. They like, want to tell like you a, a story. Six, like Six Flags or something where there's no story. You're just getting roller coaster, which yeah, has you're getting, its place. you're getting a thrill, which yeah, does have its place and, and has its, has its own unique appeal. Uh, but that's not what people go to Disneyland for. Right. Uh, but we were also talking about how the Fantasyland rides, kind of have their own unique uh, structure. And part of that is based on the limits of these kind of 1955 era buildings. And part of that is the technology that was used to build these rides in their original form. And part of it is that uh, I think there were some choices made on the storytelling side of things 
that are really interesting and change the way that you might view these rides upon your next ride if we were to discuss them today. So that's what I'm hoping to get at with each of our uh, kind of pet topic rides. Yeah, we've uh, we've divided up the kind of core rides uh, of Fantasyland, and we're going to kind of do a, a quick rundown of, of each one uh, and talk about the story of the ride, which uh, story elements get cut, which ones get enhanced, and which ones get kind of combined, uh, and how you you know, could shrink a, a, a 90 minute film into a three and a half minute ride. Yeah. And, and none of these really are much longer than that. Uh, three and a half to four minutes in runtime right. total from getting on to getting off. That includes kind of waiting for a second for both of those processes. So, um, oh, and we should say before we start, that we will not be discussing Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, even though that is kind of a favorite for both of us, right? <laughs> right. We love Mr. Toad, um, but we didn't feel like it was fair to talk about it because neither of us have watched uh, Mr. To the Adventures of uh, Mr. Toad and Ichabod, Ichabod Crane and Mr. Toad. Yeah, Is it was a double feature uh, released together. Um, yeah, uh, neither of us have watched that feature in... I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> so it, it really didn't feel like uh, something that was worth talking about, though that ride is awesome, especially we for it. uh, for its ending, I would say. Uh, and that <laughs> right. train I mean, effect. The train effect is amazing. And what other ride quite literally sends you to hell? I it's, mean, not even the Haunted Mansion is that bold. It's very strange and uh, a lot more, uh, it's faster and more fun, I think, than a lot of the other rides. But we can't talk about the story, and that's what we're, we're here to do. Right. It's like, uh, do you want to start with uh, the oldest and dearest of, uh, of Disney films turned ride uh, with uh, Disney's first full-length animated feature? Are you talking about 1937's spectacular Snow White? I sure am. Well, uh, I, I would love to. Uh, and let me tell you that I'm glad that you let me claim this one because it's always been kind of a favorite of mine to yell about uh, while visiting Disneyland. <laughs> so Snow White's Scary Adventure is really interesting in terms of how it tells the story. So let me just break it down really fast. Uh, you start out, you're sitting in a car. The car is really cool. It's got uh, carvings of animals and stuff on it. Uh, and you end up in the dwarves house, uh, first thing. So you see the dwarves, they're kind of singing. Uh, Snow White is there. She's kind of walking up some stairs. Uh, and there's that really cool, uh, pipe organ thing that the dwarves have. Uh, you turn a corner, you're in the dwarves' mines. Uh, and, uh, oh, no, wait, before that, go before that, there's, there's a moment where you're outside the dwarves' house, uh, and you see the queen. And she's like, oh, the dwarves are trying to hide Snow White from me. So then you go into the dwarves' minds, and then you end up in the castle. Uh, and the queen uh, transforms before your very eyes from the beautiful queen to the uh, old witch. Uh, and then you get a scene where you get to watch her poison the apple. And then there's a really spooky section with uh, skeletons in, in like a dungeon area. And they, uh, you turn around and the queen starts popping out of corners, offering you the apple. Uh, and she offers you the apple three times. She's like, ah, poison apple. Here you go. Uh, 
And then she pops out of a door at one point, and and she's like, ah, poison apple. You turn another corner, and the dwarves are pushing the queen off a cliff. With a boulder. Uh, with a right? boulder, yeah. They're like, uh, like they've got a, a lever of some kind, and they're like pushing the boulder, and the, the witch falls off the cliff. And then you turn another corner, and you're in the exit area. And there's a mural there that says, and they lived happily ever after. It's it's so, so abrupt. That ending is incredibly abrupt. But also, you you don't really get to experience the story from uh, Snow White's perspective at all. No, uh, and the movie isn't really from Snow White's perspective. She spends most of it asleep. That's true. That's true. She falls into that sleep, and there's a lot with the queen and the prince. A couple of things that are left out of the ride entirely are like uh, the face in the magic mirror. Uh, right. You, you see the witch talking to the mirror, but she sees herself in the mirror. Uh, and there's that really cool effect with the two mannequins. Oh, so, I love that. So that one can spin That's around. Such a, such a cool piece of tech. It's really, really cool. Uh, so you, you don't really see the face in the magic mirror, which I feel like is a huge part of the original film. Prince Charming does not figure into the story at all. Not at all. Uh, I don't think he shows up until the mural. Not until the mural. In fact, that's the only place he shows up. Uh, and the dwarves appear in their house and uh, at the end. So so yeah. in the, la the first and last scene of the ride. So what you've got is kind of this really truncated really uh odd feeling story where snow white and the dwarves are having a nice party the witch transforms poisons an apple offers it to the audience three times and is pushed off a cliff by the dwarves and when you just say it like that it's it's so so short and i think it's not a very effective storytelling method unless right. you consider the design philosophy of the Imagineers at the time. So this is something that came up during research, is that uh, the main character of the ride uh, is not the main character of the movie. The main character of the ride is you as you write it. Right. Rather than you seeing things from the point of view of Snow White, you become... Not even you don't even become Snow White. You just become you and you are suddenly in the world of the story having your own version of the same adventure, but like super short. Yeah, way, way shorter and way more transparent because uh, it's kind of weird that the conflict gets introduced and then we get to watch the villain make her plan and then have the villain try and make her plan work on us, the audience. <laughs> that's really which which doesn't make any sense to us but we're also not children that's true and if i were if i were still a kid uh maybe i wouldn't ask any questions about that i'd be like oh no the witch is trying to get me right and it's scary it's it's called snow white scary adventure for a reason it's a spooky ride I, truly the the dungeon area is pretty graphic with those hanging skeletons it's not what you'd expect from a family-friendly disney dark ride but it's also just tame enough to to pass. Like it's exactly as as 
graphic as the film is. So right. if you're comfortable with letting your children watch Disney movies, you can go watch a Disney ride. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So anyways, that's what I wanted to talk about with Snow White is that the, the ending, especially, uh, it so seems, abrupt. seems especially weak in terms of, uh, the time taken for storytelling. It's a very strange ending. You don't even get, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, and they all lived happily ever after with the prince and stuff. You don't get the satisfaction of the romance or the kiss or anything. Or even, or even seeing Snow White, uh, fall into the coma or the magical sleep. Let me try that again. <laughs> or even seeing Snow White fall into the magical uh, sleep. Like it doesn't, you don't get any of that. So, it, Honestly, at the end of the day, what did the witch do to be pushed off a cliff? Uh, she threatened the audience. She threatened the audience. And I guess the dwarves kind of rescue us from that. They're our heroes. <laughs> Just like they're the heroes of the movie. Yeah. So so speaking of really scary rides, uh, <laughs> and, and and I know it's scary isn't in the title, but I always thought that maybe they should be switched. Uh, I Yes, Pinocchio's I, I, daring journey. Daring journey. I have very strong topic. opinions. Oh my gosh. The Pinocchio ride is the scariest ride at Disneyland. Fight me. I <laughs> will so... I will fight you, but I won't be happy about it. It's so so scary. Pin the Pinocchio the movie is is incredibly terrifying it's and it's really dark. It's it's kind of overt overtly moral uh storytelling and and what it what it chooses to to focus on as like the lesson it's teaching children i think is has not aged well um and is and, and very, a lot of that does carry over into the ride uh and comes across as very old-fashioned it's very preachy yeah um but uh i'm not you know i'm not here to talk about about pinocchio uh and, and and whether or not it's still morally relevant i'm talking about the ride so how does the so, ride hold up in terms of storytelling so as far as storytelling goes it tells the story of of a puppet who is an who is dancing right and then is put in a cage mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then escapes from the cage to go party at pleasure island where suddenly everyone is donkeys and escapes from there, doesn't get sent to the salt mines, um, turns a couple of corners, looks lost and scared, uh, is yelled at by a, um, by a whale. Yelled at. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and I'll explain why that's the, the thing I chose. Because <laughs> yelled at by a whale, um, has its name yelled very loud by his father, mm -hmm. turns another corner, mm. see, and then the blue fairy is there, and then it says Pinocchio's home, and the cat and the goldfish are there, and everyone is hap living happily ever after. And I, I believe you exit through a clock shop. In Geppetto's, you were in Geppetto's home when you meet the blue fairy, which is attached to his shop and you walk out the door and that's the end. Like the things that you miss in the, from, from the film are, uh, why 
Pinocchio's a puppet. Why like, he why, exists why, why, at all. Why he exists at all. Um, why he decided to go dance um, and sing I've Got No right, Strings. Right. Uh, um, an actor's life is a life for me. He sings in the ride for about a second. Uh, and and there's Stromboli, and he's scary, and then there's a cage, but he gets out. So, so you don't know why Pinocchio's there. You don't know who Geppetto is. If you went into the ride totally blind and you had no idea the story of Pinocchio, you would walk out sh- shattered and confused. It's a, <laughs> it is a scary, it's truly terrifying and has and, and relies so heavily on you knowing the story of Pinocchio. And so, so what about it? Because uh, we were we were talking about some of the specific imagery. Uh, what about it specifically terrifies you, an adult well, woman with as an adult woman with a, <laughs> apparently emotional maturity? I think I don't know about that. <laughs> um, trying to try riding that ride, and there are, you're supposed to. I guess you're supposed to be from Pinocchio's perspective a little, even though you see him. But everything in there is enormous. The Stromboli is looming over you with his enormous bird cage. And then as you're in Pleasure Island, this huge laughing jack in the box with this mean, ugly face and everything in it looks looks like it's looming down over you. That you're in this this Pleasure Island, which is supposed to be when Pin- Pinocchio first walks in, it's like, oh, man, how fun. We get to rough house and we get to do boy stuff. And, um, but it's like so sinister, like the, 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 the Jack in the box is laughing at you and, and, and all of the, the, it's a horrible racket of noises and things smashing and crashing around. And then you turn the corner and there's this, (laughs) there's this donkey in clothes crying for his mom. Um, and Pinocchio standing there in horror. (laughs) Watching his friend transform. And all of a sudden, you see this broken Pleasure Island, this like facade of something so great has been torn down around you. And there's all these little boys who are suddenly donkeys, literally crying for their mommies. And you almost get put into a crate with them. To to be sent to the salt mines. To be sent to the salt mine, but you don't, you run away. And then you're kind of lost in the streets for a little bit. And then. You hear your conscious, you hear Jiminy Cricket yell, look out, it's Monstro. <laughs> out of nowhere. And then, Monstro out of, out nowhere. of nowhere. And then there's this huge whale with big, sharp, horrible teeth looming at you, a little strobe light effect. But you, you know, quickly turn the corner he yells and at run you. away. He yells at you. <laughs> it's essentially all he does is he just like looms up and looks scary with his mouth open. Mm-hmm. But you quickly turn the corner and then it's a little dark and you hear Pinocchio, you know, and there's the biggest statue of Geppetto ever. Yeah, and biggest Geppetto animatronic. On a, on a personal note, over you on a personal note, the, the Geppetto is what always got me. It was like, oh, there's Monstro and he's big and there's noise and light. But then you turn and Geppetto's nine feet tall. He's the biggest animatronic and he's, ever. He's yelling, and I don't know, just that's a lot for my fragile psyche. I kind of didn't feel like I was in danger, but then all of a sudden I was very scared. Very scared of the giant Geppetto <laughs> um, man. 
because monster the whale is a pretty big like is a is a pretty big like villainous figure in the in the film but you don't go in his belly you don't you don't escape do he just, by by lighting a fire you don't spend a bunch just, of time in there you just see him you just look at yeah. him and and then there's the blue fairy in this beautiful uh projection that's what a that pepper's ghost a pepper's so, ghost so it's a it's and... a the reflection against glass when the model is lit up and then uh when the light turns off it seems to disappear yeah and she's beautiful and there's her magic sound and then there's pinocchio sitting on the bed and i swear to god he's still a puppet but that might so just he doesn't be he doesn't even really he... seem to become a real boy at the end yeah, but they and they certainly don't say, "Oh, you're a real boy." Geppetto just says, "Pinocchio's home," yeah. and then you exit through the shop, and that's the end. It's a very it's it's not as abrupt of an ending as Snow White, but it leaves out a lot of key like context that you need to make these individual scenes work. Yeah, because otherwise it's just but... uh, it's just a series of increasing uh, body horror, really. <laughs> it is it's really scary and uh, but again most of us watch that movie as as kids or if we go to disneyland we're disney fans and that's one of the classic films so you don't really you know like you don't need all of the little details if all it's doing is if its main job is to remind you of what you felt when you watched the movie so so it's a it's series so of, of maybe uh evocations of emotions more than a strung together series of events that tell a story yeah i think so yeah i think it's just supposed to be like gestural reminders of this narrative that you know that you love hmm. and um and and that maybe there's value in that maybe it doesn't need to be an explicit here's the story we're telling in order for it to be worth telling. Well, I wonder what a ride like that might even look like. Um, like <laughs> it might just be sitting in a room for 90 minutes watching. Yeah, in a seat that doesn't move. And, and what you've got <laughs> is this film, this animated film. <laughs> and we've just described going to the movies. This is a good spot to transition to Alice in Wonderland. I know you love this ride. And so while I think Pinocchio leaves out a lot of its narrative. Uh, Alice in Wonderland actually does a pretty fair job of telling most of the story. Well, it doesn't give, maybe it doesn't do the details, but uh, it's kind of a longer ride. Yeah, it's a little bit longer. And the, uh, the other reason I really wanted uh, Alice in Wonderland as, as one of my pet rides this week was because it's uh, unique in that it's one of the only rides that changes in altitude. So it has an upper and lower section. Uh, and this was partially done originally to save room at Disneyland. Uh, but also it, uh, I think it, it aids in giving the, the ride a little bit more room to breathe, uh, and a little bit more time to include certain things that maybe would have gotten left by the wayside. So Alice in Wonderland is a pretty great ride. Uh, it starts outside underneath giant leaves uh, in that stylized Alice in Wonderland uh, style. Uh, and you hop aboard a caterpillar. 
And Alice narrates to you the first part of the story. She says, my adventures in Wonderland began when I followed a white rabbit down a hole. And you now kind of embody Alice as you fall down the rabbit hole. And you meet the doorknob that talks and he, he welcomes you into Wonderland. And, you know, you kind of chase the white rabbit. And now there are some really cool new uh, projection screens that show Alice chasing the rabbit. Uh, oh, they're so They're beautiful. really great. Some of it is original animation. Some of it is new animation just for the ride. It's very cool. It's a great effect. Uh, so you, you kind of go through that. Uh, the Tweedles pop up. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. There you go. He went this way. No, he went that way. And you, you kind of follow one of the directions. Uh, you see the caterpillar. You see the flowers. They sing. It's just like the movie. Uh, you go around a little bit more and you see some cards painting the roses red. And they, uh, you, you kind of, you kind of wind your way through that. And then you see the queen and the king and they're playing croquet. And suddenly the queen gets mad at you and she's like off with your head and you escape. The, the caterpillar car bursts through a couple of lines of cards. Uh, and so far, that all sounds a lot like Alice in Wonderland. Uh, it sounds just like it the sounds movie. just like the movie. There's there's the introduction. We find out who Alice is and what's happening to her. We find out. We follow the yeah, rabbit. we follow the rabbit. We go through a couple of really unique areas. We meet the colorful characters of Wonderland. They do their thing very very quickly, but they do their thing. Uh, and we even get the climax of the story, which is, uh, at the end of the film, Alice is put on trial and she basically says, you know, forget Wonderland. I'm done with this and you guys aren't so tough. <laughs> and she runs away from the cards. So just like Alice runs away from the cards, you run away from the cards too. Uh, and that's the three quarters point of the ride. So then you bust through some cards and you're on the second level. And you come out and you, you got an, a nice view of the Matterhorn Mountain and some of the rest of Fantasyland and maybe the uh, Mad Tea Party teacups. Just, if you can time it right, it's an awesome spot to watch the fireworks. Or the from. sunset. Or the sunset. Uh, those are those are both great times to be on Alice in Wonderland. Um, so yes, you kind of make a couple of turns, you meander, and then you go. Back to Wonderland. Uh, so, so this has been the part of Alice in Wonderland that has always confused me a little bit uh, in terms of its structure. Because then, and only then, do you start to hear the strings of A Very Merry Birthday, And do you see the Mad Hatter and March Hare and Alice enjoying the Mad Tea Party? And then you round a corner and there's a cake with a candle in it that looks like it's about to explode. And the white rabbit's like, oh, no, it's going to explode. And then it does. And then the doors open and the ride is over. And that's and the end. That's, that's where it leaves off. Uh, you, you end on a bang, uh, which is, you know, I think an appropriate way to end a theme park ride. You know, there should be kind of a, sure. uh, a climactic sound and visual. Uh, and that, that certainly works there. But in the film, Alice meets the Mad Hatter and March Hare maybe 20 minutes in to the 90 minute picture 
and they're they're definitely the most popular, most enduring iconography of the movie. But they're seen as extremely. But funny it's not the end. Also. You know, the the end is Alice's yeah. escape, and that's that's really what the end should be about, in my view. And yet here we have this really uh, kind of awkward shoehorning of, oops, we forgot to add the the mad tea party. Uh, better put it in on the way down. And I, I'm, I've always been confused about that. I think. I have an idea. Okay, I'd love to hear it. I mean, I think maybe they put the tea party at the end because when you make that final turn out of the ride, the teacups ride is literally right there. That's true. And so I think it's like it's like integration with the next ride over. It's like, a, hey, you just went to this tea party. You can go ride the teacups right there if you want. That's to. true. And and that kind of integration, I think. Might be unique in terms of what's at Disneyland. I've been thinking about it. Since you posted on Twitter, and I think you're right. I've. I can't think of a single ride at Disneyland proper, Disneyland California proper, that does anything like that, that ties in with the ride next to That has to a, a ride and a second ride dedicated to the same film that, that have a connection. Of the film. Yeah, that have a connection in terms of the structure of the two rides next to each other. You could make an argument that something like... Uh, like uh, the rides in a bug's land are all kind of themed together. Uh, yeah, they're all themed together, like as a land, but they're not. They're not connected. There's no sequence or uh, storytelling order. And right. and and why and and that's why I think they chose to put the the tea party scene last in the Alice Wonderland ride because it'll feed right into the teacups. Even though now that I'm thinking about it, the teacups ride was there. First. The teacups ride was there on opening day, and not Alice in Wonderland the, the ride. But the teacups so maybe were, it is that the teacups were in a different spot. So so they were, were moved they? from kind of closer to King Arthur's carousel over by where they are now to kind of increase the cohesion of the Alice in Wonderland area. You know, I, I was so proud of uh, Alice in Wonderland as my choice because I was like, yeah, it goes up and down. Uh, but it's still <laughs> a ground-based uh, vehicle system. And it's still basically uh, very... basically a dressed-up car, right? Uh, and yes. you selected, I think, the best car system in Fantasyland as your uh, second pet ride. Uh, so would you yes. like to jump into Peter Pan's flight and how the story gets told there, specifically uh, how we are welcomed in by having these flying boat cars? The Peter Pan ride is probably the best ride in all of Fantasyland, unless you count the Matterhorn bobsleds, which is technically part of Fantasyland, but I'm talking about Fantasy dark, dark rides. rides. Yeah, uh, Fantasyland dark rides. Fantasyland. So Peter Pan's the best ride and everyone knows it. That's why its line is always so long. Um, and it's the best ride because you fly in it. You literally fly and it creates such a wonderful, like full body experience. It really flying. is believable. So it, it's, and it's so smooth. I love it so much. 
So you hop into the boat. It's a pirate ship shaped boat that you get in and it's suspended from the ceiling and it doesn't mess around. It puts you straight into the nursery room of the darlings, sends you right out the window and flying over London. It is super magical really, really quickly. And you get the 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 music and 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 I think that as a narrative there might not really be any story here at all. You hop out the window and you fly to Neverland. On your way there, you fly over London and you get the massive Big Ben, st- massive Big Ben right in Big the middle ben, of the, the room. You the fly only three D object in London. The only three D object in that room. So, which makes it stand out so thoroughly from the bottom and then you fly into the most gorgeous room which is basically just mirrors and lights and so it looks like you're flying through the stars and you do a couple of big swooping moves and it's so smooth and it really just feels like you're swooping through the stars it's it's beautiful then you turn the corner and there's neverland right there you're still amongst the stars and neverland looks it looks so little but you can because of the way that it that the ride's designed, the track lowers you closer and closer to the model of Neverland. So it looks like you're coming down at it from above. And I mean, you are literally, but it's uh, something about the way that the perspective works. It looks so little. And then all of a sudden you're right on it. You're right next to it. And there's a rainbow over the Mermaid Lagoon and there's a pirate ship in the harbor. And you just... Instead of saying, we're going to fly to Neverland, I'm going to, I live in Neverland, my name's Peter Pan, and I'm going to take you on <laughs> this we're adventure. Gonna, we're going to fight just, Captain Hook, and that's how the story's going to end. And you you just do yeah. it. There's no exposition, there's no anything. It just says, here we go, and flies you out the window, flies you over this magical island, flies you around where you watch uh, Peter Pan fighting a pirate. Well, Wendy's standing on the plank, you've got and 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 so from there it's a little bit of plot, but mostly it's just like look at look at the scene of what these kids are getting up to on this adventure. And then there's Captain Hook standing over the mouth of the crocodile, and it, it kind of wraps itself up story-wise, and then you put the pixie ducks on the pirate ship and it flies away. There's not not really a lot happens because it's not a that ride is not about the story. It is about the motion of the ride. And this is where rides and and movies takes, you know, like, okay, that's the most obvious statement ever. What the difference between a ride and a movie is that you move on a ride. But like, here's where instead of like, I'm riding in a car and trying to look at the story around me, where the the function of the dark ride gets stepped up, like turns it up to 11. And it's like, here's a dark ride that you think you know what's going to happen. But instead, we're just going to show you super gorgeous scenery as you fly around in the sky, throw you some illusions that make you think like you're actually really high up in the air, and then set you back down on the ground again. Wasn't that fun? And it was. It was. It, it, and it, it invariably is. is and was and continues to be. And and I, I guess 
the reason the reason we might say best when we really mean most effective or maybe most affecting with Peter Pan's flight. It's the most immersive. Yeah, it is is because it it welcomes the audiences in in that way. Uh without the pretense of you're the hero of the classic tale or without the pretense of we got to tell the whole story. Uh, it's more like a it's, feeling you get when you remember Peter Pan. Yes, it's the yes, the emotion you feel. Remember the first time you saw this movie and how it made you feel. Check it out. And it it, and it works. It's effective. Yeah. There, yeah. I think it's I think it's very effective and I think it's beautiful. I love and and I'm I'm going to go back to to Big Ben for a minute because my the reason why that that part of the ride always stands out to me so much is that is my mom's favorite thing. My mother always wanted to go to London. She always wanted to go to London. And to her London was that scene in the movie Peter Pan and the ride Peter Pan of like looking down over the city and there's this big towering clock tower and this this magical like far away place that she had never got to go to before and i just recently was able to take her to london um i was able to do that for her and i i brought her to london and there was big ben and well it's the before don't at me i know it's the Elizabeth Tower and Big Ben is the bell inside the tower. I know that. I know I'm very aware of that. <laughs> Don't at me. But I she saw it and was disappointed a little. She was like it's smaller than I thought mm. it would be. It's it's not as big and tall as and imposing. And and it, I was thinking about it but that Peter Pan, both the the ride and the movie, kind of gave her this this idea that this that the city of London, which isn't, I mean, it's still on our planet. It's not truly that far away. Was some magical place that you fly over, and and it was associated in her mind with something magical and larger than life, and that the ride gave that to mm. her. And seeing it in reality took it away. Uh. It was, it was, um, I mean, we still had a really good time well, sure. in London and we took, took pictures with the, with the clock tower and, and, and rode a bus all the way around the city and had awesome food and a, and a really yeah. good time. And yeah, but it was just, it was really striking to me how much that scene in that ride made an impression on her. She grew up in Southern California. She was born in, oh, she'll hate me for saying this. Um, she was born in 67. She's been going to Disneyland since she was mm. a kid for almost as long as Disneyland's been around. Um, so yeah, that was obviously something that was really important to her. And I, and I wonder if, I, I wonder if that was a, I think it's a good thing. Oh, absolutely. Probably, absolutely. Right? I, I think, uh, this might be a topic for another episode, but the um, the imagined or the simulated uh, can be just as meaningful an experience as the real, um, and maybe even more so. 
and the the imaginary uh, image of Big Ben that she had for so long isn't gone. It's just uh, now held up against this not disappointing, but uh, far less iconic real thing. And yeah. and it's it's they're both good. They're valid because they're meaningful. Well, okay, now this might be going too far or too mm. cheesy, but what if this was the whole growing up thing that Peter Pan wanted to avoid? Avoid doing? avoid Big Ben like, becoming real and keep it this big glowy clock in the sky that's like always there. Uh yeah. <laughs> and, and like and that that magic, that feeling that you get uh by say rewriting the ride and kind of swooping over Big Ben the way that you always imagined it would be swooping down over Wonderland or not Wonderland. <laughs> Neverland. Different <laughs> lands, probably Neverland. adjacent. I might have called it I feel like I might have called it Wonderland on accident Maybe. too. Uh swooping down we'll <laughs> swooping down over Neverland. Uh and being like, there it is, just like how I imagined it, just how it appeared in the film. I think that's the point of Disneyland. And I think that's why that ride, yeah. uh, why Peter Pan's Flight especially, uh, endures the way that it does. Because it's about, it's about bringing that to life. Yeah, and I think it does it the most effective, as much fun as the other ones are, or as scary as the other ones are, I think Peter Pan does it the most effectively. So, to to kind of wrap up and kind of maybe uh, tie into other conversations and maybe maybe the business side of things, uh, I think it's time to kind of scoot towards the fact that we've just talked about four movie tie-in rides uh, that right. we view as classic storytelling devices that uh, were impactful to us as kids and still have an impact on us today, uh, and that are essentially four-minute commercials for your favorite Disney films, available now on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> to get the full story. and <laughs> uh, Yeah. So, so why do you think... Um, or why do you think, you know, in recent years, there's been kind of a, uh, not a backlash, but maybe a criticism of Disney and its parks uh, incorporating its recent intellectual properties or IPs into its parks uh, so heavily, where these rides, many of them were opening day attractions that are kind of the essence of Disneyland. Uh, why do you think there's such a, a distinct difference or maybe a lack of criticism of these older ones? That's a really good question and a, and a big conversation that we've had on Twitter recently. I, I want to start with saying I've never had a problem with movie themed rides or lands. Uh, I have always been a fan and I think that that is such a big part of it like you said from the beginning from opening day is such a big part of what disney has been about it's a it's a tie-in to all of their things and they know it and they're business savvy and they sell merch and they sell you know they have they have their fingers in so many pies um to to sell things to make money 
and I don't think it's wrong to be to to be a little cynical about that but I do think that the recent backlash about it has been just general um maybe a general feeling that Disney's gotten a little too big for its mm. britches um that Disney has now bought Marvel and Lucasfilm and most recently Fox. Oh, that's right. Um, their, their entertainment yeah. division. Um, and I know that was just recently and they haven't had a chance to build anything since they bought Fox. But this idea that, oh, well, and when they bought Pixar and, and all of that in the uh, late nineties, um, the idea that, that Disney suddenly went, we have all of this influence and we have all of these properties let's just keep going let's just go until all of a sudden we're so big i i it, it almost i feel like some of the that cynicism comes from people not knowing when disney's gonna mm. stop like at what point at what point is disney so big and owns so much of everything and the crowd size gets so big and and everything that it stops being fun and starts feeling like just going to the mall surrounded by hmm. that's really interesting uh and we were talking a little bit uh and this was on twitter and just between the, the two of us how um disneyland kind of opened with these kind of broad stroke uh genre lands right with adventureland and frontierland and fantasyland and tomorrowland, tomorrowland. and main street usa uh and and they were kind of they they were each representative of a larger genre and they kind of capture that genre uh while still being specific and having their own attractions within that um but fantasy land has kind of always been movie land uh yeah from the from the beginning and any and 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 this i scoff a little bit when people are like Oh, Disney is nothing but but movie tie-ins these days. I'm like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they've always been movie tie-ins. That's uh, that's not new. No, absolutely not. Uh, but but I, I wonder if maybe uh, the speed at which things are being tied into intellectual properties, uh, or maybe it's the um, the specificity is what people are uh, backlashing against. Uh, so, for example, you and I are both in love of with every concept art uh, that we see of the new Star Wars land, Edge of the Galaxy. Oh, it looks Galaxy's so gorgeous. Edge. Oh, it looks so uh, beautiful. Yeah, Galaxy's and it looks, it looks fantastic. Uh, and I can understand a line of criticism that says... That's not Disneyland because Star Wars is not a genre. And every other land right. in Disneyland is a genre. It's fantasy or New Orleans, which is not really a genre, but, you know, the the kind <laughs> of uh, aquatic slash haunted land uh, or cartoons or sci-fi. And Star Wars actually fits under one of those. And this is too much. I, I can understand a line of right. criticism that I, goes that way. I, I always kind of thought, I don't know, that if they were making that that Tomorrowland was halfway to being Star Wars, you might as well just go whole hog and and redo it. Yeah, but I totally understand the idea of keeping Tomorrowland 
Tomorrowland. Like, why change it? That that would that would be taking away the name Tomorrowland would uh would ruin a lot of the classic Disney yeah. thing. Like, and the, I think you, Star Wars Land being its own thing. And is if you put Star fun. Wars Land over think, on its like, own, you actually kind of reopen Tomorrowland to stop being half Star Wars Land the start being itself again, uh, which if we're going to talk about future episode topics, the uh, educational purpose of Tomorrowland uh, and the, the inspiration it was supposed to have uh, in the original design and that it did for, for many years in its, in its rides um, can return. So Alice, with all of that said, uh, our time talking about the Fantasyland Dark Rides has come to a close. But over the last week since we released our first episode, we have a couple of comments from our faithful listeners. That's right. I got uh, several comments from uh, people who have listened to the first episode and really liked it. I think the Haunted Mansion was a, a good choice for our first episode. It's got a lot of uh, faithful fans a lot of whom uh, chimed in. Uh, for example, uh, Christy says that her favorite thing about the Haunted Mansion is the bullet mark in the dancing ballroom scene from when someone shot a gun off the ride, off in the ride. That large piece of glass that separates the Omnimover from the scene was originally airlifted into the building before the roof was on. And since it wasn't an option to replace the glass, you would have had to tear the whole building apart basically to take that glass out after apparently a gun goes I off. I cannot imagine the, the circumstances surrounding that. I don't I don't know that either. But uh she says uh since it wasn't an option to replace the glass, they added a spider decal to try to disguise the bullet hole. And apparently you can still see it. That's incredible. I, I never looked for that and that is- it's it's just so crazy to me the way that details like that uh, end up in people's like experience and like you look for it every time once you notice it right i know i'm i'm so excited to look for it next time uh i i and i'm gonna look up how <laughs> gun went off in the haunted mansion. thank you christy uh now julie says that her favorite part about the haunted mansion is that uh at the magic kingdom in florida they've changed the queue to include a lot of interactive elements recently but Mr. Gracie's wedding ring is still embedded in the pavement outside of the mansion. And that little detail, uh, she says is really important to her. Yeah. I was going to mention this. I, I, I mentioned a little bit in the, in the, in our discussion on pre-show about how in Magic Kingdom, Madam, Madam Leota's, um, eyes open and close oh on her gosh. gravestone, on her headstone, uh, which is very, very cool. Um, but, uh, I didn't mention the wedding ring, and I should have. That started as an accident. Um, there was a, um, like a turnstile um, was taken out uh, from one point of the line to be placed in a different spot in the line, and it left a metal ring in the cement that they just never took out. And a lot of people started like headcanoning it as like the wedding ring, as it was like thrown out of the window or something and embedded into the into the ground and uh disney took it one step further and went ahead and put a wedding ring in the ground instead of instead of that old um turnstile that's an interesting instance of uh Uh, fans shaping canon that's the sort of thing 
They shape the, the whole sort of thing that you'd only really hear about, say, like in the Star Wars community. But with because of the rabidness of the fan base, except here we're talking about uh, the fans of a ride, of a place that you can go to. Right. And they've made it that's, interactive. They've 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 so made cool. it their own, which is extremely cool. Oh, thank you, Julie. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Julie. Um, my buddy Lizzie, who I mentioned in, in the last episode, is having the uh, Haunted Mansion purse. Um, she um, she left a comment. And I knew she would. Uh, she said she has a special love for the Haunted Mansion because it's really the last ride that Walt Disney directly worked on before passing away. Um, then she goes on to say, but of course, that magical man left us with blueprints for things to come later, like Space Mountain. So that's true. The Haunted Mansion was the, the last ride um, that was put into the park that Walt Disney uh, had direct impact on. Uh, but yeah, he left us so many ideas that they were still implementing decades mm. later. Um, because yeah, he never got to see the whole park finish. And, and, and as we know, uh, the park never is going to be finished. They're going to keep expanding and changing, uh, forever, which is, uh, which is why it's so special. It's really exciting to people. that to, so. to think about, like, here we have this place that is now, uh, over 65 years old. Uh, and what will it look like when it's a hundred years old is a really like, it just, it's just an interesting question. Like what does a 100 year old theme park look like? What is, what is structures and rides that have been there for a hundred years look and feel like, uh, and we'll probably live to see that. So that's exciting. Yeah. That's not really mm -hmm. that far away. Uh, so we'll be able to take our children there. Thank you, Lizzie. Awesome. Uh, and Alex says that she was really <laughs> excited to hear about our podcast. Thank you, Alex. Uh, she says people go to theme parks, especially Disney, because they recreate magic in every way, shape and form. Uh, she also goes on to say theme parks help you leave your troubles at the door and feel free. It's nostalgic and magical. And that's why they go. Also, the rides are super fun and slightly addicting. Uh, and that, that's an interesting concept to me. The, <laughs> the addiction thing, like, I can't stop riding Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, it's just it, so it fun. might have been a real mentality for me at one point. Kind of like I gotta, I gotta go get my Disney fix. And actually, I kind of, I kind of yeah, know people been, who talk about it that way too. Yeah, Liz, Lizzie. Uh, going back to Lizzie again, she's my, probably my most Disney obsessed friend. She, uh, she talks about it. She lives in Arizona, and she drives out to Disney. She has an annual pass. She drives out to Disney like six or seven times a year for special events. She comes out for Halloween every year and she goes for Dapper Day every year. And she, you know, it's it's if she's gone from Disney for too long, she feels sad. And she's like, you know, what would make me feel better? A day at Disneyland. That's you know what? I, so, I completely understand that feeling, too. Uh, and finally, we have a we have a shout out to a faithful fan who did a little bit of publicity for us. So Natasha. Yeah. Thank you Natasha, so much. Natasha, Natasha yeah, about the uh, show. It's really important to us that uh, you guys are listening and enjoying. Uh, and if you want more people to know about it, of course, that you're sharing that you are listening and enjoying. Um, but seriously, <laughs> wherever, you, wherever you are finding Classic. us, uh, be it on iTunes or YouTube or Google Play or Stitcher uh, or any other various and sundry podcast places, uh, thank you for finding us there. And any comments you want to leave us, we are 
very excited to find. Yes, yes. and we will respond. We are we, we are active. we are that <laughs> intensely devoted to our podcast. Thank you for listening to those happy places. I'm Buddy Duquesne, and I'm Alice White. The research for this episode was done by Buddy Duquesne and edited by Alice White. This episode was edited by Buddy Duquesne and produced by Alice White. Our theme music is Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers, featuring Phil Alvin. Find the Feet Warmers on YouTube or on their website, CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. Send people to our website at www.thosehappyplaces.com and join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash thosehappyplaces, where we're always talking about theme parks and ideas for future episodes. We're also on Twitter. That's right. I'm at buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And I'm at Alice White THP for Those Happy Places. Thanks for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places.